listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Jim Laird Show. This is a very, very special edition because... I have Kiefer on the line, and he is coming out of hibernation, so to speak. So this is really cool that I get to interview Kiefer on his own station. So what's up with you, dude? Where the hell have you been? Um, well, you know, you probably know better than everybody else, just cracking away on stuff still. It's been a incredibly stressful and long couple of years, it feels like. Yes. So, uh, I mean, you've talked about you've talked about different things that you've got going on, like books and software. And where are you on that stuff? Like what, what's going on with your, with your products and, and, and you in general, like, uh, where are you at these days? Uh, well, I'm still out on the, I, if you mean location wise, I'm currently on the West coast. Uh, some people saw on my Facebook, I was in Serbia for almost two months and that has to do with the software project. And, over the last last couple years, I mean, you know, I wrote Carbonite just just to give a perspective of um, information density in products. I wrote Carbonite ten years ago, over ten years ago now, and then learned a lot more and wrote Carb Backloading. And then since Carb Backloading, I've learned so much more and kind of in the process of writing the next Carb Backloading like everything clicked you know literally decades of reading this stuff i've been doing this since i was 18 and uh which you know is over 20 years ago that i've been reading this stuff and working with people and everything just finally fit into order kind of the missing piece slipped in there and it literally changed everything i thought i knew about you name it, why we get sick, why we get healthy, how do we get healthy, how do you actually cure some of these diseases, can some of them be cured, what are the root causes, uh, why, w how to eat appropriately for exercise and different goals, the interference hypothesis, uh, you know, I have an analytic model now that shows definitively why there's an interference hypothesis, and you can actually predict and then create training programs for somebody based on what their main goal is. You know, do they want to be stronger and stay lean? Do they need endurance with that strength? And you could actually predict the exact amount of each type of exercise to get the right combined effects without going too far in one direction or another. And, you know, I couldn't, there are a lot of, a lot of questions I couldn't answer before and now nobody's posed a question to me that I haven't been able to answer. That doesn't mean I know everything, but my knowledge base and the, as you like to call it, 10,000 foot view of how all of these things fit together uh, just finally clicked. You know, I don't, it, it's, it makes sense to me now why there's actually a very scientific and solid explanation why when you do weight loss studies, you don't see any difference between different types of diets. You actually shouldn't. And that was the question that Dr. Feynman raised in one of his papers is, you know, it, there's so many different physiological processes going on when you change a diet from 
low fat to low carb, the question we should be asking is why don't we see differences in fat loss? Why don't we see massive differences in fat loss? Because we should, but we don't. And there's an answer to that question. And being able to answer that question actually then helps you answer the question of still why are carbohydrates dangerous? And until you have that underlying framework, there's no way, you know, everybody's looking at these weight loss studies and say, well, it doesn't matter, or weight gain studies, and they say, well, it doesn't matter. But it does in the long run. It's, there's, there's a very huge impact, and people are missing it. Um, so I kind of feel like the book, anyway, is taking so long because it is literally the precipice of a paradigm shift. If this doesn't change the way the world thinks about human health, nutrition, and performance, then, you know, I might as well just disappear at that point because it's the, the, the most I could possibly do at this point in my life. Let me play devil's advocate with you for here for a little while. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't so even get into carbo- the software. I know. We'll get to that. We got plenty of time. So you said carbohydrates are dangerous. What about all these hundred, you know, there's tons of variables, sleep, stress, all this good stuff that, that, that take into account to health. But you'll look at these hunter-gatherer tribes, they'll argue that these hunter-gatherer tribes had a high-carbohydrate diet, and yet they had no, no, no diabetes, no tooth decay. You know, we look at the, the work by, um, um, God, it's on the, the Weston A. Price. What do you say to those people? They're like, well, these guys ate a ton of carbs and, and they didn't have any kind of uh, degenerative diseases or modern diseases. What, what, what is your basis for saying like that statement that carbohydrates are dangerous? Well, A, I'd like to see like the actual food logs of all these people that they say, you know, had large carbohydrates diets. Um, usually they're pretty very, very unrefined and unrefined to the point of a lot of times not even being cooked. Yes. Uh, which totally changes the profile of what you're eating. I mean, you go from a highly usable carbohydrate that's going to increase uh, blood glucose levels to one that's per- going to provide a large amount of fat, actually, to from its fermentation in the gut. And then on top of it, it's so carbohydrates are dangerous in the right context, uh, which is the American diet, as everybody should be able to notice. And on any sufficiently mixed diet, um, there is a lot of damage going on that's being ignored. So you won't always see that in every population. So if a population has a long enough period of time or if their caloric density or caloric load is low enough for a long period of time, then you can actually stymie some of these effects that would normally show up in a prolific in a food prolific society like the United States. So people always like to talk about Okinawans and that their ancestral food is sweet potatoes, which is stupid. They don't even realize that sweet potatoes didn't even get there till 900 years ago. So that's not really that ancestral. Right. But their caloric load's pretty low. So, you know, as long as those caloric loads stay low, then they can for you know, if you understand the dynamics of the system all the way down to the bottom level, then you can see why, and that's what I was talking about, you see a lot of these correlations. You understand why these food deprivation studies show people, or show animals at least, with longer lifespans. They show greater mitochondrial health. Um, We start to understand why these things happen and 
how we can get those effects without having people starve or without having them have super low fat diets. Um, cause, cause let's face it and you kind of hit the nail on the head. You're trying to play devil's advocate, but at the same time, if you sit back, you have, you really shouldn't be astonished by all the things that eventually fail. What should be astonishing is all the things that actually succeed. I mean, right. th- think about it. Like it almost Every diet within a certain parameter of things like works for a while. It's like, why is that? You know, that's that's kind of the perplexing thing. And that was the problem I had because, you know me, I've been anti, not anti-carbohydrate, but I've been a proponent of using carbohydrates in a very cyclic manner in some way. And, you know, when people would point to some of these other studies or populations or even, you know, friends it's like so why is this working and you're not a true scientist if you just are going to wave your hand and say oh no it's just it must just be something that we don't notice or they just must be eating less calories and you know that's not really being a scientist a scientist wants to know well you know that's a good question what is the answer why is it that this is working so well why is it that that works in a certain way and then why does it not work in other ways? And, you know, over the last two years, that's pretty much all the questions I've been trying to answer. So your your devil's advocate question is exactly why things are taking so long, because I don't want to put something out there that's half-assed or where I have to fill in my opinion for fact, or I have to use something like the new bu- the new buzzword for stuff is, you know, experience-based or evidence evidentiary-based science which means observational that's not science that's the first step of science i don't want to be that person who's trying to throw around buzz terms or terms that sound scientific without actually understanding it myself um so i guess that's my best defense of why what i've been doing i gotcha and 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 also i think you have to take into account that these ancestral like everything all the carbs we have today like the fruits and the vegetables and things have been bred to have to have more sugar and taste better you know like people people don't under, realize that that you know the, the sweet potato from 900 years ago is you know a lot different than the sweet potato now or the strawberries that you get in the wild are a lot different than the strawberries you find in the grocery store right and you know i've uh, i addressed that in one of the one of the paleo articles I had that was basically trashing paleo, uh, which I have not reversed my stance on. I still think paleo is pretty idiotic um, in its founding premise. Not that it makes bad food recommendations, just it's, its founding premise is flawed and it makes people do some crazy things and probably provides a lot more stress in their life than they need. But anyway, you know, in one of those articles... I had that in there, you know, talking about the composition of some of these traditional populations. And really the problem is that's a modern observation. You have to realize that's that's not an observation that goes back very far. You know, that's maybe an observation that at most is 100 years old. And to show why that possibly could lead to some serious errors, and I mentioned this in one of the articles, and I don't remember the population, but there was a population of hunter-gatherers, and it and um, they were looking at their traditional diet, and they actually recorded their diet as a historic hunter-gatherer diet. Well, it turned out when they, you know, later on when genetic 
research came along and we were able to trace ancestry, we actually found out that group of hunter-gatherers had been farmers. They had actually evolved as farmers. They had all the genes we see in populations that form farming communities and have those kind of foodstuffs. But the land had become infertile, so they had to go back to hunter-gathering. So the question there is, you know, we don't know how much flux these populations have had in the types of food that they eat. So using any current data on hunter-gatherer, you know, this, the still existing hunter-gatherer populations, you know, it, it's academic because it's good to know what they eat now, but we really can't extrapolate that back a thousand years or 10,000 years and say, well, this is what all people should be eating. You know, they clearly they're subsisting very well. Does that mean that that's what, you know, somebody with uh, European roots should be eating every day? Unlikely, but I would bet if you did put them on that exact diet, they would get healthy because they wouldn't be eating nearly as much food. Most of it wouldn't be cooked. Most of it wouldn't be palatable. And their ratios of, you know, carbs to protein would drastically change, I'm sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I get in these, uh, you know, I, I'll do a podcast interview and I'll say, hey, this is what I've seen works with the majority of people, you know, push your carbs at night time, you know, more proteins, vegetables, fats during the day, um, you know, lift some weights, go for a walk. And that's what I've seen works with 80 to 90 percent of the people reduce stress, sleep. And then, you know, I'll get into the people will start attacking me and say, well, that's not, you know, this study shows that that doesn't work or this doesn't work. And I'm like, look, you know, dude, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, you know, I'm tinkering with things in the gym and I'm seeing what works with people. And this is what I've found works best for majority of people, you know, over 20 years. And then if the people the usually the people that that basic formula doesn't work for, they've usually got something going on underneath like the hood. They usually have got like, you know, we had a lady that, you know, she cleaned her diet up. She worked on stress management. She ended up having iron overload, which was causing a huge stress for her. You know, she started giving blood like every couple months and she started dropping body fat. You know, I had another guy who couldn't gain weight. He went on to, he went on testosterone hormone replacement, still couldn't gain weight. He ended up being a celiac. So once he stopped eating, you know, breads and grains and all that kind of stuff, he ended up getting better and gaining weight. So, you know, for the majority of people, what I've, I have that formula for what works and, you know, I'll do a podcast or something and then I'll get attacked, you know, basically somebody will say, well, dude, like that's not right. You know, there, you know, there's no, there's no such thing as, you know, carbohydrates are fine. You need to eat them, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I've never said not eat carbs. I'm just saying, don't eat them at every single meal. Um, how do you balance like you and I, we talk all the time and you make me feel really stupid, um, and, but we've never really argued about, you know, practical application versus the scientific method. How do you balance that, you know, what you see in science and how to apply that in, you know, everyday life? Well, I, I mean, personally, it comes down to two factors, really. And the, the first one, when I first started, I had the first factor I thought, I think nailed and it made me really cocky and I thought I knew a lot it, turned out you know I became humbled over the years since and that's just raw knowledge base you know there is some truth to the adage that knowledge is power and you can learn a lot and you can read a lot of studies but until you actually start to work with people you don't really comprehend 
what those studies are saying in a real life context. And, and, you know, and, and you, and that actually opens your eyes to what kind of studies are you looking at? So a lot of the things that people are probably saying, well, this study shows this, you know, they're, they're not really studies. They're not, there's a lot of them are observational, so they can't really tell you anything too important. They can provide a lot of questions that need answering. And then some of the double blind studies, you know, those aren't real life contexts necessarily. So, and they also usually try to pick their target population very carefully. So you're talking about an, a homogenized target population that has similar blood markers, similar levels of health. Like, how often do you get that in your gym? How often do you know that everybody walking through your door has the exact same blood markers for everything that you're looking at to work with, and they're at the same level of, you know, cholesterol and body fat and, you know, health history? Like, how often do you do that at your gym? Yeah. Never, never. Everybody's different, but most right. people are broke, or most people are just broken. I mean, that's well, the majority of people that come through my door are broken. True, but it's in n- different in different ways. Yeah, it's not that everybody's different. If that were the case, then you know there'd be no point in studying human physiology or biochemistry or you know molecular right. biology. People are all pretty much the same, but at their core, and you know just they start to deviate depending on what their history is and what their current paradigm is. So, you know, and then it's it's this wonderful self-fulfilling feedback loop because I had all that knowledge, but I hadn't worked with people. And then I started to work with people, and you start to see all these deviations that you just don't expect if you know the research. And then as you see these deviations, you go back to the research and you learn new things because you have new questions. And then that puts everything you learned before into perspective. And then you start working with people again. And as you work with people, you start to see new things and you have new questions. And working with people and having all of that knowledge, they really tend to reinforce each one so that you can put everything that you learned into into perspective with each other like you understand how all these studies relate to each other which not very many people even try to do because the body of research is so massive and and at the same time you see how once you learn those connections and what they say in general you learn how to apply those to people and how that affects and helps the largest number of people so uh, you know for me it's it's that experience along with the knowledge base that's made it, you know, when you talk about your 10,000 foot view, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, that's totally legitimate. You're seeing things that are meted out in the very, very low level research. And at the same time, you're not trying to put stipulations on people that would make it untenable or actually eventually turn them in a direction that would be unhealthy. Like, for example, I think a pure ketogenic diet is unhealthy. Um, And I think these intermittent fasting protocols and um, other ones that are having people, you know, not eat for 24 hours, those are actually dangerous too um, because people aren't looking at the full human organism. They're just looking at body fat levels and insulin sensitivity. Well, you're looking at two variables in an organism that has millions of variables that are important yeah. for health. So I hope that answered the question. It, it does in kind of a roundabout way. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, Dr. Terry Walls um, – has said this a number of times, and this is another big 10,000 foot view statement, surprise, surprise. But, you know, she basically said, you know, 
all disease is basically the same at the cellular level. It just manifests itself differently. And this is a generalization, and I hope I don't get it wrong. But, you know, all disease basically comes down to the same thing at the cellular level, mitochondrial dysfunction, but it manifests itself in different people. Like me, I get ultracolitis or, you know, celiac disease. Somebody else gets gout. Someone else gets, you know, heart disease. Other people get, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or whatever they get. But it all comes down to like, you know, a couple factors like stress management, shitty food, and lack of sleep. Is that is that a pretty good generalization uh, for the direction that you're going, or is that is it uh, or is that way off base? No, I think that's uh, a fair generalization. I I think the mitochondrial connection obviously is key. I mean, everything starts the mitochondria, so you would expect any large scale problems to probably start there as well and percolate their way up. Um, the the problem with a lot of those discussions right now is they're, um, I would call them fluffery, because people like to equate them to all these other diseases, but they're not doing the hard diligence to say, okay, exactly what is the cascade? Okay, we know mitochondrial sick, and then to be honest, I haven't even seen, I've seen very few, even in the literature, propose exact mechanisms for what's making the mitochondria sick in the first place. Um, so, you know, I think that's one thing that's missing when you try to talk about that generality. That generality sounds great, and actually it's not far off point. Um, but the problem with getting that kind of information accepted and built upon is you've got to have the underlying foundation that says why that's the case. And, you know, I... You know, I, I've heard kind of back-of-the-envelope explanations, and they're not very accurate. And that's that's one of the things I'm, you know, went down the rabbit hole on was trying to answer that question, like, what is making mitochondria sick? Because if you can answer that, then you should be able to figure out the whole damn thing. Right. And is that, that where your is that where your new books are going in that direction? Yeah, yeah. Because once you, if you know. If you start at the mitochondria and you start to actually understand what makes them sick and the time scale on which they get sick and exactly the processes that are making them sick and then how that turns into a cascade. I mean, my, my new book makes the argument to basically connect mitochondrial sickness to every disease you can imagine. If you want to talk about Alzheimer's, if you want to talk about diabetes, actually it makes an unbelievably strong argument that being fat is not the cause of disease it's a symptom if you're getting central right. obesity you're already sick and that's why right. all of these studies that just look at fat loss don't have the same results you can get the same type of fat loss but you get different types of health at the end of it and also once you have that fat loss if they stop they get fat again right away well it's because the sickness never got treated so right. of course they're going to get fat right away and so if you understand all these processes, you can explain this entire cascade. And once you have that kind of scientific foundation and underpinnings in place, you can start to have a real conversation about all of these different things we see and why we're seeing them. Um, so, so in general, I think that's it's a true statement. Um, everything kind of starts at mitochondria. I would argue it's some of the diseases being direct consequences of that cascade um 
but yeah, that, that that's a fair statement, and my book basically just solidifies that. That's why I said it's it's really a paradigm shift. The moment that you can look at somebody and say, "Look, being obese or having that central obesity that you're developing, or whatever." Or even being able to talk to somebody young who's just starting to form, you know, a little pooch or a beer belly, to be able to talk to them and say, look, here is exactly what is happening. Here is exactly where you are in the disease state, and here is exactly where you're going to go. And I can tell you why for each of those. It's no longer that a question of, oh my gosh, you just don't have the willpower and... Right. You know, that's why you're sick and that's why you're fat. You need to just stop putting food in your mouth and blah, blah, blah. You know, it changes that conversation to where we can actually help people. And, you know, you don't have to make people feel bad. It's like, you know, look, the government's been making the same recommendations for, you know, 50 years. And people keep getting sicker and sicker. And all they do is slightly refine those recommendations. And or tell you they exercise more. Right. And, and what's the saying? You know, only an idiot will continue to do the same thing, hoping for different results. Um, and I mean, maybe that's why Alan Aragon likes, you know, those kind of guidelines so much. You know, well, because... my argument would be on the government stuff. My argument would be and I put my tinfoil hat on proudly is that that's by design. You know, that is by design. See, and, I, don't... I mean, we could you don't. Yeah, we'll get an argument about that. But. Well, you I know my take fine. on that. I mean, it was a perfect storm of why it happened. And now it's not really a conspiracy. It's just who is motivated to change that? Think about the billions of dollars in the pharmaceutical right. industry. Think I mean, the about drug the... industry is not going to be – the food industry is not – you know, they want to sell more food and the right. drug companies want to make more money. Well, and the healthcare know. system. The healthcare system is making shit tons of money now that comes out of our taxes – that right. will make the gov- will that will make the country insolvent in another 20 years like we won't be able to afford it but the people running these institutions what do they care you know they're right. by that time they're going to have enough money to like move somewhere else and not worry about it and go pay for the best health care in the world whereas right. well my my argument is is a sick population is easier to control you know whereas a healthy strong independent co- population you can only govern them govern them yeah, see, I you know. think that's that's too far into the conspiracy theory. I don't. Okay. I mean, it, it's. <laughs> it, I'm not <laughs> saying I'm not saying your argument is not correct because there is definitely some truth. If you take somebody who's starving, you can get them to do quite a bit if you're willing to elevate their level of, um, if their level of well-being even just a little bit. But you know, on the flip side, it's just really all about money. There's no conspiracy. There's right. it's right, right. now. Sickness in the United States is a massive money-generating machine, and the only way to fight that – you're not going to fight that at the government level. You're not going to fight that at the pharmaceutical company level. You're not going to fight that even in the healthcare system The only because they're all vested in it. They're all making a lot of money out of it. The only way to fight it is to educate people. Education is – yeah, Paulo – Paulo Freira, if you know him, his his one of his main tenets was the way to make people free, whether that's free of government or free of some other oppression, is to educate them. Education is the real power, and that's the one thing that we move away from in the world right now. And and I think social media, for better or for worse, has been a double-edged blade there because it has opened up all of this scientific information for the perusal of anybody. Um, and which does increase the overall educational level. People can talk about things now 
that two decades ago, if you talked about glucose, they would have no idea what glucose was. It's like, well, you know, what is that? Now they know it's in food. They know it's their blood sugar. They may not understand some of the technicalities. But, you know, at that level, that's increasing. And they understand that there's bacteria in the gut that's helpful. And, you know, they understand all these different things about human health and the food supply that they didn't 20 or 30 years ago. And the Internet's responsible for that. But on the flip side, you have a lot of people who just have an opinion or really believe in something or really vested in an idea who want to push their agenda. You know, they want to be right because, well, they think they're right. They, you know, honestly, a lot of these people, I give Alan Aragon a lot of shit all the time, but, you know, I, I think honestly he believes what he's saying is correct. You know, he's not saying it because he just wants to make money or, you know, there's, well, the vitriol is because he wants to be popular, but I think he has that platform because he thinks it's the right platform. And, you know, the the problem with the internet, though, is the one thing that it hasn't fostered yet is a good dialogue amongst all of these different perspectives. You know, instead, it's just a trashing dialogue because that's what's right. popular and that's what gets you an audience and that's what, you know, keeps you selling things or gets you article deals or, you know, whatever it is you're looking for. Yeah, so, well, people can't have a rational discussion about anything without making it personal anymore, which is very unfortunate. You know, you should be able to disagree with someone. And, um, you know, it's one of the biggest problems in our country right now is people, you should be able to disagree with someone and still respect them. And, and you know, of course, unless their 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 take is something that hurts somebody or is, is totally insane. But you should be able to disagree with somebody and not take it personally. I mean, that's just uh, that's what debate is. I mean, that's what. You know, we're not all going to agree on everything, you know, but yeah. there are certain facts that, you know, we need to to, to acknowledge. Um, you know, we, t- we talked about about sickness and, and root causes and all that. And obviously, you know, that Biggest Loser uh, article came out where everybody that did the Biggest Loser ended up gaining back all their weight. Yeah. And, you know, that's a prime example of, of what we what you were talking about is, you know, they didn't fix the root cause of these people's obesity which was lifestyle it wasn't a lack of exercise it was just a sick unhealthy body and they tried to fix it with fitness right um, so, well so you have to go backwards i don't think the problem was lifestyle i mean t- at a at your ten thousand foot view yeah it is lifestyle because they're doing x y or z thank but, you yeah but it's you know more deep-seated than that uh, there's well, yeah. There's emotional. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that goes I'm, into it. But I'm, I'm not even talking about that so much. Um, I'm, I'm talking about. So there is something to be said for, you know, I, I don't want to derail that because there is something to be said for emotional components and stress components and sleep components. But the when you start talking about those, the first thing you have to realize is everything we know about those factors and how they relate to health are 100% tied. To people who are already on a diet making them sick. So all of this stuff we talk about, about how important those things are or possibly are, from a st- scientific standpoint, the only thing you can say is we know that if your body is already in a route of becoming extremely sick, that these things exacerbate the problem. From that, you know, until we actually know what the problem is, focusing on those things is the minutiae. You know, I agree it will make improvements. I mean, clearly, if if you've got a system that's overtaxed and you start taking away stressors, you lower mm-hmm. the, 
you lower the burden on the system and the system can operate at slightly better efficiency, but you're still not solving the problem. And that's, I mean, that's where I want to go with this book is like, what's the problem? What is the real okay. problem? And the real problem is, I mean, well, it's, it's diet and it's what diet's doing to us. But until we have that scientific framework, there's no conversation that can be had. It, it will just eventually degrade into a shit show of, well, shit slinging. Um, because, you know, there's not that scientific foundation to underpin the conversation. And without that, then you do have a lot of legitimacy to just telling people, well, hey, you know, you just need to reduce your stress and you need to get, you know, and those things will help. But they're not going to cure somebody. Curing somebody would mean helping somebody to lose however much body fat. And then at the end of that process, if they decided to start eating like they did in their 20s, that it would take them another 20 years to get sick. That's curing somebody. Right. I haven't seen anybody do that. And that's because nobody's, even everybody who says they're curing diabetes right now, Jason Fung is one of them. He's like, I'm curing diabetes. You know, my pay, I'm curing diabetes. Well, if that's the case, if they're cured, they should be able to start eating exactly like they did in their 20s. It should take them another 20 years to get sick. But of right. course, that, that's a valid that's a valid argument. And and you're so you you're, instead of cure, it should be managing. That should be a yes. better a better would be a better word. But I, I, I like think we can people, cure these things. I think you know I tell people all the time you want to empty the bathtub so that one drop of water doesn't spill your bathtub over the top. Right, know? and that that's actually that's a great analogy. You know, you're 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 emptying that load so you can handle more incursions. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick later and extremely okay. sick. So you're actually talking about getting down to the cellular level, fixing things in the mitochondrial level so that you have a fresh slate to start over if you want to be stupid again and do a lot of the things that make you sick. It would, it's going to take you the same amount of time to get back. Can, do you think that that can be done with things like you know MS and, and, and Alzheimer's or is, is the damage already too, too far gone? Uh, is it going to depend person to person, or is it going to depend on genetics, or what what, what kind of factors? What, what's your opinion on that? Uh, I th all of those. So you have two battles going on right now, and you're talking about the primary battle that we're all concerned with, and that's the people who are sick now. And yeah, I think that you know on the genetic side, I can tell you for sure you could do a simple DNA test on somebody and tell them their risk of Alzheimer's and when they'll develop it. Or you could tell them, look, you're just never going to get Alzheimer's. You're going to have all the exact same metabolic damage as somebody who does get it, but you won't. I mean, you might get something else instead. Yeah, you're you're gonna you're gonna develop one of the other diseases associated with your problem, but you're not going to get Alzheimer's. So you know, genetics play a huge factor. Um, individual differences clear. You know, the the amount of time that you've been deep into the disease state is going to play a factor, and then the type of medications that your doctor gave you to try to mitigate some of the symptoms will also likely have a big effect because it allows you to get sicker than you normally could. So, you know, on that front, that's going to be a battle that is going to be very difficult. How many people that we can help recover from that? I don't know. How many people whose lives we can make better? I mean, that's all of them. I mean, that's an easy question to answer. But then the second battle is the people who aren't sick yet. You know, right. what What do you do with them? So imagine, imagine this in your life. Imagine you are 
in your 20s or you're you're going into your 30s because when I crossed into my 30s was kind of the first time I started thinking about like health and longevity. So imagine you hit 30 and you know you have no fear of cancer. You have no fear of developing Alzheimer's. You have no fear of getting diabetes. You have no fear of managing your body fat. Imagine that world where everybody in the United States is hitting 30 years old at that point in their life and they just don't care. Their concern is their kids, their job. Where are they going to go on vacation? You know, they're not worried about, oh my God, am I going to be able to afford my health care? Oh, you know, what medication am I going to need to be on? Oh, I need to get out and I need to try this, do, try to, you know, walk this many times a week. Oh, I'm going to have to do this. Oh my gosh, you know, what does it mean when my doctor says that a triple bypass is probably only a year away? Uh, imagine a world where you're not thinking about that, where nobody's thinking about that. I mean, I honestly think we could eliminate 90% of all cancers within the next 50 years just by doing dietary changes. We could essentially completely eradicate Alzheimer's. It would become an obscure disease again. You know, all of it these sounds things. To me like, it sounds to me like you're going to get assassinated. Eh, that's fine. I've had a good life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue. I'm just argue. messing with you, dude. No, you know, you are not the first person who's told me that. <laughs> that's what's scary is more than one person, especially, you know, you're one of the few people. I think you're the only people that I've gone through the full cascade with. So, you know, to the little spoiler yeah. alert. And the, and the only reason you did that with me is because there's no way in hell I could explain it to anybody else. Right, right. Well, my, you know, my head hurt. My head hurt for like four days after that. <laughs> well, you know, I pay, I choose wisely, but you know, yeah. the the point being, you know, that here's the spoiler alert. Jim already knows what's already in the next book, and you know, so you know, he he's kind of prompting some of these things because it it really should be the precipice of a paradigm shift and i mean if that's the end of my life's work because i get assassinated i'm totally fine with that that's not a bad legacy to leave behind no it's not although i would be sad for cooper we can find somebody for cooper dude that's no problem <laughs> i know somebody People probably suck dogs. that actually cooper's probably the bigger reason that i'll get assassinated so they can steal him is my guess it'll have nothing Possibly. to do with the book Possibly, yeah. possibly. So what's what's the uh, what's the calendar here, dude? Like you've been talking about your book, and you've got you know all sorts of stuff going on, and obviously you want to make sure this is done right. That's why it's taking so long. You just don't want to put out a shit sandwich. You want to make sure this is done properly and thoroughly. So what's the what's the timeline here, dude? Like what's going on <laughs> with your software? What's going on with your books? Um, well, let me explain know. the software. You can you can plead the fifth if you want to. No, no. Well, I'll explain the software to ex to explain the timelines of everything because I think that'll help. So, you know, the software stuff started eight years ago when I first started making some of the algorithms, and I literally just didn't do didn't know enough to do it right, so I just never did it. Now I do know enough stuff, and for the last three years, literally, I've been trying to get this stuff started. And I, I mean, you know the saga because you've seen me go through like the horrible depressions every time it happened where, you know, development companies have been ripping me off, giving me crap, running off with money. Um, it has been an amazingly shitty three years. And um, up until just a few months ago, you know, I just, I was about ready to give up on it. I was, you know, it's I just, 
you know, it's half a million dollars of my own money just like right now gone as far as I can tell and no software to show for it. And I was super depressed and ready to just almost quit everything. I was, you know, I was like, screw it, screw the book, screw the software. I'm just going to go live in the mountains somewhere. Costa Rica is always good. Yeah. You know, I'm not, there's too many, there's too many internet marketers in Costa Rica now. That place would make me ill, I think. Where Uh, would you go? Well, you know, I was thinking maybe, well, I don't know. I mean, Eastern, Mexico's pretty cool. Yeah, Eastern Europe probably. Oh, Eastern Europe, okay. Yeah. That's yeah too, I mean, too many taxes, too many taxes and regulations for me. No, well, as I'd long pro- as you stay out of the EU, you're good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'd probably go, options. I'd probably do like Alaska in the summertime and then somewhere in like New Mexico, maybe Northern Arizona in the, in the, in the uh, winter. That'd probably be what I'd do. See, I was thinking Barcelona in the winter and Belgrade in the summers. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, that's it's kind, good of choice. A, kind of a nice mix of things. Um, but, you know, that's the, – the software had been at a standstill for, what, uh, two months ago it had been at a standstill for four months. There's just this critical system. The developers weren't getting it to work, and I couldn't figure out why because, you know, I wrote all the algorithms for this stuff and coded half of it and just handed it over to them. And, you know, I, I literally just to the point, it's like, screw it, I'm, I'm done. And I finally looked at some of the code, and one of them made, like, a simple mistake. Literally simple, which they were trying to make an optimization, but it made it so it was impossible to get an answer. There was absolutely no way we were ever going to get an answer. And that's, that stopped the project basically for four months. I'm like, I just, I was beside myself. So it was kind of that moment of, Am I all in or am I done? And what, like three days later, I was in Serbia. So that was kind of my level of commitment to getting this thing done. And I was there for two months uh, working on this. So, you know, it's we didn't get it finished while I was there. But now all the pieces are in place. I know it will actually get finished. Uh, I just kind of, before I talk about a release date, I just I want to get to that point where I can let some people in it to play around with it. And once I get there, which hopefully will be in the next couple months, after I get that kind of feedback, I can give a release date on that. So it'll definitely be next year. And then that's what's held up the book. Um, you know, I've been pulling double duty on stuff like research for the book, trying to write the book, uh, you know, trying to do the software stuff, trying to manage all of that. You know, at the same time, trying to keep other things going. We launched a new supplement, which was a lot of work trying to get that done and doing the research for that over the years and like getting the launch all together. So it's just, you know, there's too, too much going on. Um, so the new book next year too, and that's the most I'm going to say. I mean, two, 2017, I plan on pretty much starting everything back up, starting podcasts back up, start writing articles again, get the book out there, get the software out there, see how, how it does, how, how I can improve it. Cool. Um, is that a good yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine turning someone something that complicated over to somebody else. I mean, I, I have to show people how to mop a floor. You know, so I feel <laughs> right. your, I feel your pain. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jim Laird Show, brought to you by Body IOFM. When Kiefer and I uh, decided to do his uh, coming out of hibernation uh, interview, we just decided to sit down and talk and see where it went, and it turned into kind of a colossus. So we decided to split it into two parts. So this is obviously the end of part one. Um, 
we didn't plan it that way. That's just what we kind of decided to do after. So in, uh, in part two, he gets into exactly what his software is going to be able to do for you. He talks a lot about the staff that he has currently and, and uh, the coaches that he has working for him. So it's, uh, I hope you guys are looking forward to that. So um, if you would like to catch up with me, um, I have started posting on my blog again. I took a long hiatus from that, but I've started doing that again. It's uh, Jim Laird, uh, J-I-M-L-A-I-R-D dot O-R-G. Um, I've got an Amazon store on there with all sorts of different books that I recommend because uh, people are always asking me about different books and questions like that. So I put that on there. Um, I've got different products uh, from people that I recommend for continuing education. Most of them I've had interviewed on this uh, on this show, and I will continue to do that to provide more continuing education for you. Um, if you have any questions for me, uh, you can reach me at Jim Laird, G-Y-M-L-A-I-R-D at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any suggestions for future guests or questions that you'd like me to answer either on my blog or on here, or if you need to do some consulting uh, for your business, I'd be more than happy to do that for you. So until next time, you guys have a, a great day. You've been listening to The Jim Laird Show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. Don't miss the next episode of The Jim Laird Show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.